0: Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about openness and innovation. How to be open to new ideas that come your way. What tips and tools you can use to ensure that you and your teams remain open with one another. And how you can employ tools from the improv world to make sure you foster open dialogue and the free flow of ideas. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Rush Schoen. Chief Collaboration Officer at Foresight and a trailblazer in the fields of innovation, team building, creativity, and change leadership. In his role at Foresight, Russ supports, trains, and coaches making conscious and deliberate creativity easy to understand and facilitate. Russ is also president of Mind Garden Innovation, a consulting company that works with organizations to unlock their innovative potential. Among the household names that Russ has worked with are Coca-Cola, Disney, Novartis, the New York Stock Exchange, Verizon, HBO, and Discover. He's an adjunct professor at the Center for Studies and Creativity, where he's been teaching graduate-level courses and facilitating the creative process since 2007. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Thanks, Well,
1: Glad to be here.
0: Of course. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. So, Russ, as I mentioned in the beginning, openness and innovation are two words that we often hear in tandem. Why is being open, whether it's to new ideas, new partnerships, or new ways of doing things, so vital for companies that are looking to drive innovation?
1: Sure. Great question. You know, the truth is that the rate of change in most industries is rapidly increasing. So if we take, for example, you know, the high-tech industry or mobile phones, you know, there's generally a fundamental redesign or a release of a new version every six to 12 months. And you can look at organizations or companies that for one reason or another fail to innovate. Uh, Let's take Nokia. So Nokia is a great example of, you know, an industry leader that for example, in the early 2000s, I think it's around 2002, they dominated, they had about 35% of the market, in the u.s now they actually had one of their earlier or, or earliest patents for the smartphone but because of internal bureaucracy or failure of leadership to seize that opportunity they, they never actually implemented it and what happened is that other companies went ahead and innovated and so you'll take an organization like nokia and you'll see their market share fall from 35 percent in 2002 to about 8% in 2010. And now in the US, for example, it's around 4.5%. So the notion is that as the rate of change uh, dramatically increases, access to technology is increasing, really companies are in a really competitive sprint to stay relevant as they see consumers have multiple choices. So the companies that innovate get the press, get the news, get the buzz, and they not only attract customers, but they also are exciting for attracting and maintaining talent. And so those, that's a little bit about um, how I see openness and innovation.
0: Yeah, and it's funny you bring up Nokia. I read something about them recently, and you, you mentioned the early patent that they had on the uh, touch screen for a smartphone. The reason that they, at least as, as legend has it, the reason that they ended up not launching or not, not moving forward with that product was because they felt like consumers wouldn't want a screen where they left smudges with their fingers on it. And <laughs> so yeah, oh, that, that, oh, as,
1: ha- imagine if they had the rewind button now. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's amazing that the, the simple twists of fate that can come come about as a result of one kind of thought or, or supposition. Uh, so, so what are some of the things that you see that stifle openness in organizations, Russ, and what are some of the things that you see that fuel openness in organizations?
1: Sure. Well, you know, in terms of stifling organizations, I, I tend to focus on what I call the people side of innovation, and really what we see or I, I've seen is You know, when asking groups or interviewing leadership or teams, you know, the number one thing that that really comes up is sort of this climate of fear, Uh, fear of looking stupid, fear of taking a risk and it not working out, fear of of really bucking the status quo. And so what I've seen in terms of organizations that are, are open or fuel is where they've leadership has successfully created a climate where folks feel free to take what I say, smart risks, meaning um, pursuing new ideas that that really meet a a challenge or an opportunity, and then figuring out a way to what I call, or what some people call mini test or prototype it and get it out there and see, see as the uh, market interacts with it, if their assumptions are correct or not, what they can learn from and how they can adjust it.
0: Okay, got it. So one of the main things that you do is work with companies and teach facilitators how to lead their own creative sessions. What are some of the most important things for a workshop or brainstorming session leader to keep in mind as they look to harvest successful ideas and bring them out into the open so that they can you know, overcome that climate of fear?
1: Sure. So one of the things we talk about is how do you create a safe space for people to share ideas? So, you know, as a facilitator, it's important to to create what I call cognitive safety, the notion of being able to give an idea without fear of it being immediately smashed. Anyone that's been in and worked in organizations over time probably has had the experience of being in a meeting where someone gave an idea and it was immediately shot down for whatever reason. uh, We don't have time. We don't have budget. We tried. And then typically what happens is the idea production of the rest of that group or meeting goes way down. So in terms of, you know, leading creative sessions, there's a couple things that really I have found to be really useful. One is before the session even starts, really setting expectations with a good pre-work letter about how this session is going to run, um, the fact that we're going to separate what we call the divergent thinking where you're generating options from the evaluation or selection of options. And then using a tool, um, there's a a really powerful tool that I like to incorporate into many of the sessions called PPCO. And what PPCO stands for is pluses, potentials, concerns, and overcome concerns. It was a tool that was uh, developed originally by some colleagues of mine in the creativity field, uh, Roger Firestein, uh, Bill Shepard, Diane Fuccasali, and how it works is when you're evaluating a new idea, you ask the individual or their team to first list out the pluses, what's what's good about the idea as it stands. Second is the p- potentials, that is, if this idea actually got implemented and worked, what positive benefits might come. As a result, what might it lead to? It might lead to more customers. It might lead to uh, spin-off products, etc. Mm-hmm. The C is for concerns, and this is a very um, po- powerful way of phrasing concerns. We take any concerns that people might have with the idea. Hey, uh, you know, this idea is going to be too much, and we ask people to phrase those concerns in a way that can be, something can be done about it. We call it phrasing concerns as open-ended questions. So instead of this is too expensive, we'll look at phrasing it as how might we reduce the cost or how might we fund this? And then the last, the O is to overcome your concerns. When you ask a, a group to think about an open-ended question, like how might we do this idea and do it for less money, immediately they'll start to come up with ideas. And so using a structured tool like PPCO, separating divergent thinking, generating the options from convergent when you're when you're choosing, are are a couple of the tips and tools that I'd really recommend for anyone running a creative session.
0: Okay, got it. I w- I would imagine that typically the human response is, is when you hear a new idea, immediately you come up with the concerns. Is that accurate? That is
1: Accurate, typically, and there's some research uh, over the years from neuroscience that basically has shown that the more novel an idea is to the individual team or organization, the more likely that the automatic response is going to be negative or skeptical. So you really can can take a lot of ideas that have been out there throughout history, from the you know the, the first version of the Wright Flyer airplane to Twitter. And you look at the response from a a number of folks, you know, that were either uh, close to that industry. Initially, a lot of the responses are that will never work. That's ridiculous. And a lot of the reasons is because humans have this um, tendency to compare a new idea to their existing frame of reference. So the notion of the right flyer as an airplane to the existing Frame of reference to transportation at that time was was so far away that most people can't make the leap, and so it's really um, PPCO is one of those tools that helps people override the, the the initial response that that idea is ridiculous, and to step back and say, wait a second, let's 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 have a balanced evaluation of this idea. Let's all, also look at the pluses and the potentials if. This new idea was possibly going to be successful. And so the notion is by using PPCO, it's not that every idea is going to move forward. It's that you're looking for the potential upside that might make the case for why a team or an organization might take the next step to move forward.
0: Okay, sure. So let me ask you about foresight here. Uh, Foresight is a a tool that you know intimately and many innovation consulting companies use. Uh, That's almost like a Myers-Briggs, I guess, for bucketing people into specific groups based on what kind of thinker they are. So what are the four different kinds of thinkers as defined by foresight?
1: Sure. So what foresight, foresight's a psychological assessment that looks at as people solve challenges, where do they gain energy, and where do they lose energy? And really, uh, Foresight looks at um, basically the problem-solving process or the creative process as having four main steps. There's clarifying, which is gathering the data and figuring out what's the right question or opportunity to innovate around. That's really around uh, figuring out the right, you know, space to innovate against. There's, once you've got a good question, then the second phase is ideation this is people or the the process of generating lots and lots of ideas once you've got an array of ideas foresight then looks at how do folks develop that idea that is take the best idea and really refine it or polish it and then the fourth is once you've got an idea that's refined and polished and and almost perfected how do you go about implementing And what Foresight looks at is um, this notion about how individuals interact with that process. And the four main preferences are clarifier, ideator, developer, or implementer. And uh, what Foresight really shows is that individuals tend to have, might have one or more preference, but regardless of preference, that individuals and teams that want to innovate over time need to make sure that they touch each part of the process, clarifying, ideating, developing and implementing.
0: Okay. And is that something that, that can one individual wear all of those hats at different points in the process or you recommend having kind of cross disciplinary teams where you have one person that, that excels at each of those? Yes. Yes to both. <laughs>
1: okay. So, you know, as, as, as in many things in creativity innovation, it depends. So it depends on the type of organization uh, that, you know, if you're a freelancer. As a freelancer, many of the folks I know uh, need to wear all the hats. And the notion, though, is regardless of preference, what foresight measures is preference. And an important part of this is what we find is preference does not equal ability. So, for example, I have a high preference for clarifying and ideating um, and a fairly low preference for developing. Yet, one of the things that I tend to do in my line of work, in addition to facilitating and consulting, is editing articles around creativity and innovation, which is a high developer task. I'm taking someone else's work, looking at it, and refining it. And I can do that. I have the ability to do that. But over time, what happens is that takes a lot of energy for me. And so what we say is, you know, for teams within organizations, it's helpful to know the group's preference and then either use tools, deliberate tools like I do when I'm developing, or they may bring in um, some other people or partner with people that can help sort of round out that team if that makes sense
0: sure okay got it that does make perfect sense so let me ask you about your LinkedIn tagline Russ and it's from from blamestorming to brainstorming Uh, so how can organizations go from a culture of finger pointing or credit grabbing to one where everybody views successes as team efforts
1: sure and I'd I'd like to give credit Um, I think I first heard that that term brainstorming to brainstorming from a colleague of mine, Jonathan Vihar, and I just loved it. So in terms of what, what I found is oftentimes teams fall into a trap when they're trying to solve problems of a part of the team, for example, going back to the foresight language is trying to clarify where another person or two in the team is trying to ideate and another person is trying to develop and implement. And a lot of times we have preferences when teams are not aligned in terms of what part of the process are they focused on. Oftentimes conflict, really conflict intention arises. And so one of the, the things that I have found most useful is to give teams a common language that they can help orient and align what part of the process is the team on? So, for example, if they're working on a new product development project, have they done a good job clarifying? And so as people start to go into the ideation world, et cetera, people or the facilitator or team leader can say, wait a minute, are we all clarified on this? Does everyone have an understanding? Great. Yes. Yes or no. If yes, we can move on to ideation. If no, let's, let's stay until everyone's got a grasp of the current situation and what the question is. So I think number one is give folks an awareness that there are parts of the process. And number two, I think it's, it's really interesting for folks to take personal responsibility for their creative contributions. And what I mean by that is oftentimes folks on different teams may view one aspect of the process, the part that they like doing, as the most valuable part of that process. And so if you can give them a common language or framework like like foresight, for example, what starts to happen is people start to really gain a real appreciation that, oh, I'm a low developer perhaps, However, that's really important to the project, and you know, my colleague Tom, for example, wow, he's a great developer. And so I start to look at the interactions differently, and it really is a, a great way to short circuit conflict.
0: So, in the keeping it kind of in the same in the same vein, and, and talking about sure. group, group work and collaboration, one thing that we touched on in a previous episode with uh, with Mike Maddock are the correlations between improv and leading innovation sessions. And the example that Mike shared with us was about the power of of yes and, uh, which to to oversimplify it maybe means that to to be open to new ideas or concepts, you have to be able to build on them collaboratively, and you can't be closed off and say no but, but the, the correct response to a new idea is yes and, which basically keeps the... Uh, dialogue open, and and you being from or around Chicago have some experience in the improv world yourself. So, what are some other areas where business leaders might be able to use tools or or a specific tool from the improv arsenal to drive innovation with their with their collaborative teams?
1: So, improv, like you said, is is a real interest and passion of mine. I, I look at the intersection between improv and innovation, and sometimes lead sessions I call improvation, which is basically uh, teaching some of the principles that drive successful improv scenes and how that might translate. So one of, you know, one of the principles is this notion of deep or generous listening. So this notion of going into a scene with a partner or a group and being okay not knowing where the scene is going. And oftentimes when you're leading an innovation effort, you may have an opportunity, but you don't know necessarily, you know, what the outcome or the best idea is going to be. It's a, it's an ill-defined path with lots of possible solutions. And so improv can teach people this notion of uh, tolerating ambiguity. And so, you know, it could be simple exercises like a one word story where you get a group of people together. And, uh, you know, let's say a team of five or six people, and we invent the story one word at a time. So if, if you and I were doing it, you know, I might say the, you might say boy, you know, and then we create this, this story that we never thought of before. Um, and what that starts to teach people is this notion of, wow, I really need to listen to what my teammate or colleagues or even customers are saying and not assume that I know the answer. Another really tangible kind of activity or frame that sometimes we'll use in innovation sessions when we're looking to generate new ideas is something that my colleagues and I call scenario storming. So where we'll have two people kind of improvise a scene like a customer experience or a customer problem and we'll freeze them and basically go to the the rest of the audience that has been watching this scenario and say, basically, what are you noticing? What are you hearing? And what ideas does that give you? And then we'll go to another scenario. And we do this rapid fire so that folks really don't have that much time to kind of analyze why the idea might be wrong or the scenario is not exact. The notion is kind of connecting back to what Mike said around yes and is. Let's do this scenario, come up with some ideas, then move on to the next scenario. And in the improv world, anyone that's gone to a real kind of improv show, I mean, in a real improv show in terms of there's different types of improv. There's sketch improv, which is written, but a true improv show is where the audience gives a suggestion, perhaps, and the actors or players really are making everything up on the spot. And so if, if you can bring a little bit of that tolerance of ambiguity as a leader and being able to say, I don't know, but I'm going to trust in the, the creative power of the group, what tends to happen is that teams and groups tend to surprise and delight you with, with their creative solutions.
0: Okay. So let's try something. Let's, let's try a game of one, a game of one word story. Sure. Sure. Okay, should I start or should you?
1: Well, what I would do is, Will, I'd ask you to, let, let's create a title. Okay. A title of a story that's never been been told of, and this does not need to be one word at a time. Just give me a title, Will.
0: Uh, okay, a title. Um, how about, I'll just throw this out there, technology.
1: Technology, great. Okay, so why don't you start and we'll, we'll create a story. A never been told story with <laughs> the, the theme
0: is technology. Whew, okay, man. All right. Um uh, okay, how? About that new smartphone. It is
1: amazing. Did you see that picture of
0: the That
1: illuminated the desert sky. That was unbelievable, and it
0: should revolutionize the smartphone industry. There you go. Oh, I love it. Man, that picture was amazing. It really lit up the night sky, you know? I love it when cactuses <laughs> uh, do that. It's crazy. And,
1: and so what you'll see is, you know, some, it, it takes uh, practice, but even you and I doing that, you know, we do it again. Uh, and by the third time, we would get into this rhythm that, wow, we are building on each other's ideas. We're having fun. We're laughing. And, you know, Some of the stories might be great. If we did three of them, some of them might be okay. But the notion is the more we do it, the more likely we increase the odds that we're going to get a great story.
0: Love it. Okay, so that segues nicely into the next question that I wanted to ask, Russ. Teaching applied creativity is one of your your skills. So you travel around the world with foresight doing it just back from a trip to Kuwait. Uh, where you' were, where you were there for 10 days. So the notion of applied creativity implies that it's taught and can be learned. It's not necessarily something that's bestowed upon a select few by some you know intangible god or goddess of creativity. So along with things like one word story, what are what are things that you do to help teams or people improve their their applied creativity?
1: Uh, sure and and uh, we do believe that you know creativity, skills, certainly can be taught and can be learned or sometimes i like to say that the blocks could be unlearned because if you go into like a group of first graders and you ask them you know how many of you are creative pretty much all the hands go up and by fifth sixth grade that notion if you ask the same group you know less than half the hands go up and that tends to go um as as people go through you know high school into college the notion is more about oftentimes fitting in or not sure how my creative strength, you know, how to display it. So people tend to um, not express all of their ideas. And what we tend to do in terms of working with groups or teams is give them a framework and guide them through a process and use deliberate tools so that they have the experience. And I think this is important that if you give teams an experience of collaborating together and guide them basically to clarify a real issue, and so we'll guide them through basically visioning exercises in terms of where do they, what's their goal or wish that they want. Uh, we'll help them diverge on that and then select the goal. And then we'll ask them basically, we'll guide them through what their current reality is in terms of what's the market, what's their customer pain points, et cetera. Mm-hmm. and then guide them through, we call them identifying the strategic pathways, which are basically what are all the key questions that need to be answered in order to move from your current reality to your vision. What, what we find are as groups get aligned, and um, sometimes the notion of having a facilitator in there, a third party to really guide just the process, is that people experience, that meeting or that project coming through the other end as, wow, that was a different experience. It was a positive experience. I got to share my opinions, my questions, my ideas, and the output was much better than we traditionally get. And so, you know, I guess bottom line to answer your question, it would be to give people a a framework that they can move through to address challenges and give them tools in each of those phases.
0: Okay. So uh, last question, and then we'll get you out of here, Russ, because we're running short sure. on time. Uh, the blessing and the curse of the internet is that you can find out a lot about people if you will just take the time. And I have no problems spending all day online. So I was browsing the World Wide Web and came across a feature on you that, that is two truths and a lie. And I want to take a stab at which one is a lie. So, okay. so the, the options are that you were a contestant on the game show Jeopardy, you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and you dressed up as a chicken and went to Niagara Falls to win a bet. So you, you strike me as kind of the outdoorsy type. I believe that you have climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, and you also, you know, as a creative and someone who's been involved in the improv world, I would have no problem seeing you dressed up as a chicken and, and going to Niagara Falls to win a bet. Now, this is not a knock on your intellectual ability because you're obviously a very smart person, but I think that you going on Jeopardy as a contestant is the lie in those three.
1: Well, well, I would like to congratulate you on getting that correct. <laughs> Jeopardy was the lie in the true, truth, and a lie feature.
0: <laughs> well, there's still plenty of time, um, and uh, you know, God bless Alex Trebek. Seems like he is uh, is, is never going to leave us. So, you know, a lot of time left to check that one off the list. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, well, Russ, thanks so much, uh, Russ Schoen. Everyone, you can find him on Twitter at at Russ Schoen. That's at R U S S S C H O E N. His companies are Foresight and Mind Garden Innovation. Also, not hard to find on the World Wide Web. Uh, please look him up and give him a follow on Twitter. Thanks again, Russ, for joining us. Thanks, Will. Thanks again to Russ Schoen for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we'll have Rowan Gibson on the podcast. Rowan is an author and internationally acclaimed speaker on the topic of innovation who's brought his expertise to more than 60 countries around the world. We'll be speaking with him about how companies can develop a blueprint to guide sustained innovation efforts in the search for breakthrough or radical innovation. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.